Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have attorney Mike Alden. Am I saying, I hope I'm saying his name right. <laughs> we'll find out in a minute. But hey, this guy is a rock star. He's written multiple best selling books. You're going to love this dude's energy, his story. Can't wait to hear it. So do me a favor and share this out right now, and we will see you guys in just a minute. All right, I am back. Let me bring Mike on. Mike, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I'm excited to have you here. I, I did I say your last? It's Alden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I it. got it. I mean, how do you screw that pretty, up? Pretty easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so Mike, I started this show about four years ago, um, and it was really to help people get unstuck in life to have a breakthrough. And, and because I look, we all go through crap in life and a lot of people get stuck and stay there. And I think by hearing stories of how others have gone through it and got through it, I think it helps people, man. So that's what this is all about. I agree, man. I think you're right. I think we all, we all have moments where we get stuck in life, whether it's the beginning of our lives or, you know, whether it is, you know, the a continue, continuation of getting stuck uh, throughout yeah. different, you know, uh, you know, parts of our lives it happens to all of us and i think a lot of us need to uh sometimes uh, you know get a little a little extra motivation and i think yeah. show, that definitely does that yeah yeah man so so start with telling everybody where you were like where where it all began where were you born and raised Jeez, man, where did it all begin? So it, it, it began right here where I'm actually sitting in a town called Beverly, Massachusetts, uh, the birthplace of the American Navy, uh, which is which is kind of cool. Uh, if you're familiar with Salem, Mass, we're actually the next town over where the Salem witch trials. You know, I grew up kind of tough, grew up surrounded wow. by crime, drugs, violence, uh, very, very difficult upbringing uh, with the way I grew up. But, you know, you hear this a lot with entrepreneurs and, and that um, that upbringing and the difficult times that I went through. Uh, it was really a gift. It's hard to think of it as a gift when you're going through the things that I went through, when the Salvation Army is, you know, subsidizing, you know, your Christmas or your Thanksgiving. And when you're, you know, your lunch was subsidized by the state and had to stand in a separate line in elementary school, middle school and high school. And I you remember what that was like. I remember, wow. you know, what it was like as a kid going to the grocery store. And, you know, back then, ATM cards weren't really a thing, but you did have a bank card. They weren't called really an ATM card. So it was like your local bank. And I remember, you know, you know, the card getting declined a couple of times when my mom would go shopping and, you know, there was, it was difficult, you know, and, and the kids I grew up with weren't really the best of kids. I really wasn't the best, best kid either. Um, because of, you know, really uh, at the end of the day was certainly a product of my environment. Um, but at the same time, I was really lucky because yeah. my parents cared. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I had teachers and I had coaches and I did have athletics that really kind of helped me get through a lot of the difficult things in, in the, you know, the, the, the path that I could have gone, you know, they say by the grace of God, go, I, you know, you either yeah. go one way or the other. And I kind of went both <laughs> at one yeah. point and I decided ultimately that, 
you know, um, you know, the, the path of, of crime, uh, which is not, not for me. Uh, well, so I, dude, you just buzz through an entire life like that. <laughs> yeah. In about so, three minutes. Right. Yeah. But I, I like back up a little bit and go back to, I, cause you mentioned, um, I don't know a lot about it, but you mentioned the Salem witch trial. I re I remember hearing about that, but like that was a thing, right? And yeah, yeah, it's the next town over. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So so, it's a really interesting place to grow up. You know, in Beverly, Mass. Uh, in fact, Beverly Farms, Massachusetts. Uh, one of the guys from uh, well, one of the original original kind of founders of Beverly Farms also then went on to found uh, Beverly Hills uh, in California. So there's a lot of old money here, uh, a lot of history here. But, you know, like any other town, you know, look, I grew up in the projects and, you know, we grew up in state housing, Section 8, WIC, you know, wow. welfare, that whole thing. And, you know, when you drove through the, the my neighborhood uh, in the daytime, it didn't look that bad at all. In fact, if you listen, if you've ever been to Compton in the daytime, it doesn't look bad at all either. Right. <laughs> right? But yeah. but there are, you know, it was a, it was a difficult place to grow up. But again, I always look back and say, man, I don't think I'd want it any different um, because as a kid, you know, I, t I mentioned those things about the Salvation Army and the yeah. WIC and the, you know, state housing and, and things like that. Um, you know, I never went without a home. Uh, you know, there were times when we did go without heat and electricity, but it was usually temporary. I never went without food, although sometimes we did open the fridge and, 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 the, and the cabinets were, in fact, barren. Yeah. But there were a lot worse situations than mine as well. And, you know, a lot of people have reminded me of that. Hey, you, you think you grew up tough? Well, well, you know, imagine what it's like growing up in the south side of Chicago. You know, I grew up really tough, like really tough. Yeah. Yeah. I've been stabbed. I've been shot at. I've been beat up. I've had stuff. You know, it, it was, you know, it's, it's been a really, really, it was difficult. But there are a lot worse situations as well. I'm here, uh, you know, uh, for a reason, but it, 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 um, you know, they call it the gift of adversity. I mean, plain and simple. It really, yep. I mean, you grow up the way I did and you go through stuff in life. Uh, it really pairs in comparison, pales in comparison. So, so as a, as a kid, a teenager going through all, and I, I, God, I can relate to so much of that. So, so going through all of that stuff, you said you were headed into uh, uh, some some bad situations. As it, I tell people, hey, I spent my entire teenage years on probation. So I, oh, I was on probation. Yeah, no, I get I get it. So like when you're going through all of that, you know, um, did you feel like I, I always felt like, you know, I was I was hanging out, running around with these bad kids, these doing doing stupid crap. And um, but there was a. I felt like I still had a, a moral compass that pointed north, <laughs> north, northwest, maybe. Sure. Um, but did you feel that like, you know, you knew you were maybe not supposed to be doing this or that, but you you've, you were like, but I, I know that. Um, I, I, I don't know. You I, know the I, difference between right and wrong. And absolutely. And I think that I think that's a reflection of probably your parents. Uh, or yeah. at least someone close to you, yeah. uh, you know, and, and for me, it was, look, um, you know, I've told this story a bunch of times that I'll tell it on the show. I remember uh, when I was about 15 years old, by the way, the size I am now probably I could stand to lose probably about 20 pounds, but I was always a big kid. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I remember I was 15 years old. I was in Peabody, Massachusetts and Peabody, Massachusetts uh, is a classic blue collar town. I wasn't really a basketball player, but we were playing basketball and these kids knew who I was. This is pre cell phone, pre internet. Uh, yeah, of course, I, I might have been in the papers a couple times for football because I was a pretty good athlete. But yeah. these kids knew who I was. 
And um, I felt I was proud of that. And they knew who I was because I had beat up some other kid pretty bad, you know, a few weeks prior and it made it all the way over to this other town in PBD, Massachusetts. And I came home and I told my mom the story. I said, hey, Ma, you know, these kids, they knew who I was. And she said, well, how do they know who you were? And I told her the story. And then she looked at me and she said, is that how you want to be remembered? You know, and that stuck mm. with me. It's like I'm telling the story now. I'm 47 years old. I'll never forget it. Yeah. You know, my father took me for a long walk on the beach one day, like a like a proud father, and said, "Hey, listen, you know, you're really going down the wrong path. You, you you're you're um, committing petty crimes. You're fighting. You're stealing. Yeah. You're doing all the things that a criminal does, but you're not very good at it. If you want to be good at it, let me introduce you." to real criminals let me introduce you to real gangsters but let me tell you a little bit about what your life is going to look like and then he went on to describe what my life would look like of you know of always looking over my shoulder and, and potentially you know you know going to jail and carrying a weapon and stealing and just living a life of just you know fear and anxiety of, of getting caught and that isn't really what i wanted to do so those kind of two moments that i mean the, my parents were divorced uh, but my father was always there my mom always cared even though she was working and doing all these things she, you know so I, I i was fortunate that my parents cared. Now, there. Look, it's it's just it is what it is, and I hate that saying. But in so this world today, there are parents that don't care. There are parents that that shouldn't have been parents. There are parents that treat their kids like luggage, yep. and and it's really really sad. And I was very fortunate that my parents did care. I was also fortunate that I had teachers and coaches that really cared about me because they saw that you know what I do have potential. And you know, um, when I talk about or I think about you know, my, my, my family members, you know, I had a brother that died of an, of an overdose, a kid I grew up with is in jail for life for murder. And I think about, you know, what happened to them and why is it so different for them? And we grew up essentially the same way. And yeah. I was just lucky that I did have people that cared for me uh, and gave me that little extra kind of uh, push and yeah. also really wanted me to be successful. And, and here's the other key part is I listened and I don't know why, but I listened to them. And I did take the advice. You know what? I wasn't always, uh, you know, a good kid, even after some of that advice. And, and I, I didn't always do the right thing. But you talk about that moral compass. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I was I was instilled uh, values that 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 my parents and again, my teachers, and my coaches really put inside of me. Like you said, though, sometimes we veer off, but we do know where the center is. So growing up like uh, uh, did you find yourself in and out of trouble or you were in trouble then eventually as a teenager, you're like, okay, I got to stop this crap now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely in and out of trouble a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, we talked about being on probation. I was on probation when I was a kid and, and there was, yeah. you know, look, there was all these, these moments in life. Right. And, and when I talked one of one of my brothers who died of an overdose and his name is Dominic and people would always say to me, my parents and would say, Hey, you know, you, you need to go talk to Dominic. And I would, I talked to him blue and I was blue in the face, you know, and I would yeah. tell him the things I need to do, but there's a point in someone's life. And it's really kind of weird when you talk about it at this stage in our lives. But um, and I think it I, I think it can happen at any stage in anyone's life. But it's usually younger where someone 14, 15 years old, they need to make the decision. You need to make the decision. And so I actually got arrested when I was 14 years old. I made the front page of the paper. It was nothing. I mean, I was on a motorcycle. I got chased by cops. It was crazy. The whole thing was crazy. And I was playing football and the coach talked about it. And uh, at practice, he says, hear about this crazy kid driving around Beverly, like a lunatic or whatever, and cops and all the whole thing. And I was like, well, that was me. Wow. Right. And, and I was a freshman. OK, my coach then uh, brought me into the varsity coach's office and they sat me down and they said, look, if, if that ever happens again, you're off the team. You, you'll never have another opportunity. Now, if that were to happen today, there wouldn't even be a talk. You would just be off the team. 
yeah. right? There wasn't any, there, there, there was, there was no flexibility anymore because of the world that we live in, because yeah. everybody's is, is scrutinizing every action that you, that you take. So I was fortunate that they did bring me in. You know, when I was a senior in high school, I was class president, captain of the football team on my way to college. And um, I was, you know, the senior, the senior year, you always, you know, kind of, you know, take it off a little bit, you know, you're going to college. Well, I was late all the time for, for my English class. And the same day, my English teacher called my home, again, no cell phones, called my home, says, if you don't show up to class, I'm failing you. And then about 10 minutes later, Mike, the head coach called and said the same thing. And I've confirmed with both of them after, by the way, that it wasn't, they, they didn't, this wasn't a concerted effort. They actually did it separately. Wow. And now here's the thing. I could have done one of two things. Uh, well, right. I could have said, well, uh, I'm not going to show up. Fuck it. Let's just see what happens. Or I show up. Now, if I had decided not to show up, my life would be altered forever. Yeah. And that's the thing is those, those little moments in life. I mean, it kind of goes to my, to my second book, 5% More. It's like those little things that make the big difference in life. And I was just fortunate that I, I was able to, 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 to have that kind of moment where I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, I, I need to get out of bed and I need to show up and, and, and do the things I need to do because it, you talk about your moral compass. Uh, I respected authority to a certain degree. I understood the, uh, the, the, the big stick that they had and the power that they had over me. If I did make the wrong decision, whereas a lot of kids growing up the way I did, they're like, you know, they give them the big, big middle finger and be like, you know what? You don't know what it's like growing up the way I grew up. You don't know what it's like to have an abusive father or abusive mother and a, yeah. or mother who's a drug addict or being shot at and all this other stuff. And, and they just say, they just give up. And yeah. so many of the kids that I grew up with and the way I grew up with uh, the way I grew up, they all gave up early on, whereas yeah. they had a lot of potential. If they had just pushed a little bit more, if they just maybe had that little extra guidance, I was lucky, man, because yeah. I did have that little extra guidance. And I had that, you know, you know, the, the teacher who, who called and, and my, my football coach who called and said, you better show up. If you don't show up, you're going to be kicked off the team. And man, like um, I think about those moments and I get chills thinking about it because it, it's that one little thing that changes yep. the trajectory of one's life. One moment. <laughs> that's dude that's awesome i totally agree and I, I i think that that you know you you go through so you get through high school uh, obviously you graduated um uh, right you graduated yeah, yeah. i graduated <laughs> i graduated 187 in a class of like two something i was yeah. class president captain of the football team with a c minus gpa my my daughter doesn't believe me and the <laughs> only reason but my senior year i essentially had straight a's like how is that possible well, yeah. my freshman and sophomore year, I was a disaster. Towards the end of my sophomore year, that's when I was 14, 15 years old, right? Yeah. I realized, yeah. whoa, um, I'm I have friends that are talking about college. Like, what's this college thing? And and getting recruited, you know, early on for for, for athletics, for football or baseball, yeah. what have you. And so yeah, I I, I made that decision. Well, I gotta turn this stuff around. So I was fortunate that I did have football. Uh, and baseball, though I got cut my junior, we could we talk about that a whole nother time. That's a whole, yeah. you know, it's you can tell it still doesn't bother me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, but I did have athletics, and that got me into college. And 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 when I right. and once I got into college, I knew what a big deal it was. Like I knew how important it was, and and it wasn't. I got. I, I didn't get into college just because of my athletics and also because of the things that I'd done. You could see my grades going up, right? I mean, it was pretty obvious that, that I was changing my life around. But still, if you look at it it's just on paper, it wasn't good, you know? Right. And so I had, you know, um, not only coaches, but I had, you know, other, other people in my life that that kind of went to bat for me and and uh, and spoke 
up for me and did things for me to help me get to where I got. And I just remember being there. Uh, I went to Springfield College in Springfield, Mass., the birthplace of, of, of American basketball. And I, I was like, all right, I'm here. I can't screw this up. And I, and I, like, I really remember thinking about my first uh, semester, I think I ended up with like a 2.9 GPA or something like that. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, I can hang here. I, can, I, I know that I can at least do the work and get decent grades. I just got to work a little bit harder if I want to you know, ultimately go to law school. So, which, which I know ultimately you did, um, go to law school, you're an attorney and, and, and got your Juris Doctorate, which is, um, impressive, man, because I, I, I mean, I know a lot of attorneys, I have so much respect for, um, that that's something I always thought I wanted to do, but I, I, unlike you, I walked out in 12th grade. I said, I'm done with this. This is ridiculous. Um, but you know, I, I, I respect that. I respect what you've accomplished and, and, and achieving the, the JD. So, so when you, you're going through college, sounds like you started to settle down a little bit, a little, you're still pretty intense. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. But you, so you settled into it though and said, okay, I got to get through this. I got to do this thing. And then you ended up going to, to, law school what in the world number one you come from you know you come from no money you come from from um i don't want to say poverty but oh no absolute poverty i mean we oh, were the poverty okay. level. yeah listen okay. state i lived on state cheese like i told you wow. i mean you know again like having my 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 christmases and thanksgivings like when i say subsidized i mean com- it's more than subsidized. I mean, just, they, they did everything, you know, they, wow. they, they delivered the complete Turkey dinner and the whole thing. And wow. so, yeah, but here's the thing, here's the great thing about that. I think about this now, even with where I'm at or other parents like middle-class parents or upper middle-class parents. Okay. With kids. Yeah. As far as I'm um, getting any sort of grants or loans, not going to happen. <laughs> so, so being yeah. poor was actually a great thing for me for college because I got all the grants and I got all the loans and because of football, this is crazy. And here's the crazy part about it. I got essentially a, an academic scholarship because they were division two. I couldn't get a, a, an athletic scholarship at the time. Yeah. So they gave me an academic scholarship, which is kind of bizarre because my, my, my GPA in high school was horrible. And by the way, I got a nine ten on my SATs. Like it wasn't good. Right. Wow. Um, but they saw something in me. And, and they gave that to me. So when I went to Springfield, all in for four years, it only cost me 20 grand. Law school, that was like, you know, to pay for, for, yeah. for you know, room and board and stuff. Um, and by the way, I think it was like 45000 a year just to go there at the time back then in 97. But um, law school was a little bit different, right? So law school, uh, same thing. I was still relatively poor, but uh, now it's me. I'm paying for it. So in law right. school, a lot of times in, in just like any other higher education, you know, whether it be, you know, um, going to medical school and things like that. I mean, the loans are sent they're, they're necessary unless you're just independently wealthy. So you, right. you're, you're, you're pretty, you know, you're, you're going to get them unless your credit's a complete disaster. So right. yeah, law school cost about 150,000, maybe a little bit more. And so I borrowed money for that reason, uh, you know, in order to get through law school and they even allow you to borrow more to live. I went to law school nights, so I was working, so that, you know, gave me, um, you know, look, as far as time, it was very difficult as far as time was concerned, yeah. but it did give me a little bit of freedom, I guess, where I had a little bit of money coming in, but it was also extremely difficult to go to law school nights and work full time. But you did it. 
and yeah. and what what do you feel you know I, I i feel like um it's always something in childhood it seems like there's something in childhood that pushes us a person a place an event something that happens that pushes us in the direction that we end up going as adults what what comes to mind when i say that was there anything that you feel like yeah that kind of made me want to be a lawyer Oh, why I wanted to be a lawyer? Oh, you well, well, yeah. I mean, I remember uh, the um, the power that police had over us, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, even back then, just something didn't seem right when when cops would just come into our homes and, you know, look. My my stepfather was a heroin addict. My next door neighbor was a heroin dealer, uh, and so I mean, it was pretty common when cops would just come in and, and you know, like and and drugs were just the you know they were they were everywhere and so wow. uh you know there 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 was no fourth amendment i mean there was but they didn't care because we were poor so i do remember that and i just remember at a young age feeling like this isn't right and so so i wanted to 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 further my education to really learn and understand listen in second grade kids and they write down what you want to be i went back and i saw this i gotta i gotta find it somewhere it's in storage but in second grade i wrote down i wanted to be a lawyer i didn't even know what a lawyer was how did i even i don't even know I don't even know how we even thought it because it's usually, oh, I want to be a fireman, a policeman. Yeah, right, right. Right? I went down lawyer in second grade. So there was something maybe even early on. (laughs) In second grade, you barely speak, you know, (laughs) that I just knew that that, that's maybe that's where I wanted to go. Maybe I had met a lawyer, you know, along the way. I'm not really sure, you know. Um, But but I'll tell you this. One of the things that really drove me in, in growing up the way I did, and it still drives me to this day, and I still have this fear. You know, people talk about this fear. I, I've seen some people recently talk about it, and I don't think they really, really appreciate the type of fear that I still have and I'll always have. And you know what? Um, some people think you say you need to get over it. No, I think it drives me. People talk about the things that drive you when you grow up the way I did, when you grow up absolutely poor, when, you know, uh, and then, and then it doesn't really get any better. And then years later I had ended up, I declared bankruptcy years later. So I really know what it's like to be poor and wow. it's not fun. And it doesn't feel good. And, you know, <laughs> worrying about, you know, whether you're going to put gas in the gas tank or food on the table is a real fear for so many people, even today. And yeah. so that fear drives me. And so when I think about, you know, kind of coming out of the projects or coming out of the neighborhood that I grew up in, that's the thing. I'm like, man, I don't want to be there. And by right. the way, I've teetered on it as an entrepreneurship, man, like over the past 15 years or running my business. Look, you know, it's, 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 there's been peaks and valleys and the valleys have been pretty deep where I'm like pretty close to almost losing everything. And, yep. and it's scary, but that's also just the way it is. So, so w- the thing in my childhood was literally the way I grew up. And also ultimately the chip on my shoulder. I was told I was going to be dead by the time I was 17. Mr. Sheriff, my guidance counselor told me that college wasn't for everybody, you know? And so I thank him for that. I thank him for the fact that he basically told me that, you know, you should just do something else. You shouldn't even consider college. And I just basically gave him the big, the big middle finger. I'm like, okay, that's what you think. (laughs) Let me show you. Right. My girl, my girlfriend's mother told me I'd be dead by the time I was 17. You know what? She was right. She was right. I had been shot at already. Listen, um, look where I'm from. Okay. It's not gun violence is not a thing. It never has been a thing. And, and the fact that I got shot at is just like crazy. 
You know what I mean? I got stabbed in high school. Again, things like this, like doesn't they don't even make any sense because the way we, I grew up in a pretty affluent area. However, I grew up in the projects of this affluent area. So those things that happened to me, yeah, I can understand why my girlfriend's mother would think I I was was supposed to be dead. But in a way that, that still drives me to this day. And it's going to always drive me. Like I'm always that kid from the project. You know, look, a lot of people say, Hey, don't forget where you came from. Right. And and here's the, the real problem with that statement. Most of us don't forget where we came from, and a lot of us stay there. I'll never Amen. forget where I came from, but I'm never going to stay there. Dude, you nailed it. And I, I'm going to Grant Cardone said on my show, he said, I wake up scared every day. So, so I, 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 dude, I do too. I wake up, I don't want to go back there. I know exactly what you're talking about. I find it interesting, though, that you actually you pulled yourself out of it, though, man, and you became an attorney. You you obviously you passed the bar, which I hear is. Um, Listen, I missed it the first time. Right. I learned this from Zig Ziglar. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, look, I didn't fail the bar exam the first time. Right. I just didn't pass. It right. was a temporary defeat. And look, at the end of the day, the reason why I didn't pass the first time, because I was poor. I had declared bankruptcy my last year in law school. So wow. I needed to actually work just to just. So I was essentially poor up until that point in, in, in even in many years after. OK. And so like I had to work. So I couldn't dedicate the 13 weeks that it really takes to study for the bar exam. Ten hours a day, seven days a week. I missed the bar exam the first time, Ken, by one question. Oh, dear. Okay. How do I know this? Well, because usually when that happens, not usually, but when that happens in, in, here in the Commonwealth, it gets uh, brought before a committee and then they then they review it. And then uh, you, you usually get brought up. I mean, I had everyone tell me, yo, you usually get brought up. Well, here's mm. the thing. The bar exam is two days. First day is multiple choice. Second day is essay. You can't bullshit the second day. You can't no. bullshit the essays. The no. second question on the bar exam, here's a crazy part about life and a crazy part about where life may bring you because you just can't see it at that time. The right. second question was all about secure, uh, about uh, secure transactions. Okay. Now I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what commercial paper was. Why? Because I didn't study it in law school because I didn't have to. And the, and the chances of it being on the bar exam, it hadn't been on the bar exam within the past 20 years. Well, the second question was about some woman who walks into a bank and she passes a bad check and she buys, right? It was this whole thing. I didn't know any of it. I knew right then and there that I was pretty much screwed, right? Uh, I knew some basics where I could just maybe get like one point or something like that. Here's the crazy part about that. Years later, when I when I start practicing law, I was working for this company that had a lot of money in merchant reserves, but they didn't have a lot of cash flow that the free cash flow. But they had millions in merchant reserves. They couldn't access it because it's designed basically if the company goes bankrupt, yeah. you know, the, the consumers can get paid. Well, because I had studied secure transactions, I figured out a way to essentially collateralize that right? With a note, with a simple piece of paper to essentially pull that money out. It stayed there, but we were able to borrow that money and we were able to grow the business. I've done that now multiple times throughout my career here as well, because we process hundreds of millions of credit cards. A lot of it is, a lot of it is sitting in reserves. People don't realize for every, you know, dollar you're processing roughly, you know, I don't know, uh, 15 cents of it or so is caught up. Right. And so, and five cents of that goes into, goes into a reserve account and then it just grows. And a lot of times you don't have access to it. So first time around, didn't pass the bar exam. 
if I had passed the bar exam, again, talk about what happened, you know, back in our earlier stages in life, my life would be completely different. So yep. it's really, really interesting. Second time around, by the way, Ken, um, I was still working at that same company. They were open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, a call center doing sales, inbound sales. So um, I was able to work maybe once, uh, once a week just to basically cover my health insurance. But I studied for 10 hours a day, seven days a week for 13 weeks straight. The second time around on the bar exam, I knew that if I didn't even show up the second day, I would have passed. Like that's how confident wow. I was. So, okay. And in and, and all this time you're working in a call center? Yeah. It was the greatest okay. job ever. I, oh, I don't disagree. It's amazing. But I, I think that, because I've said like, I, you know, I'm friends with all the Zigglers, the kids, Zig's kids, yeah. right? He's my hero. And you, you talked about Zig. Listen, he's, John he's Ziggler, my... okay. John Ziggler. Um, uh, he's a, he's like the cousin or what? So I forget exactly. He, he's in merchant processing. I'll tell you a story about him. So oh, wow. I, I, uh, in, in 2010, um, we got hurt really bad. I just started the business. We're doing millions that I just got hurt really bad. I lost my merchant processing. It wasn't my fault. Uh, it really wasn't. It was just the entire industry, right? Yep. John Ziegler. Uh, again, it, it's a uh, Zig's like nephew or something like that. Sure. Um, he, I had merchant processing with him. He ultimately saved my business because I had other accounts with him and he knew who I was personally, I lost all my accounts. They all got shut down because I didn't have a personal relationship with him. Uh, I had a personal relationship with John. John says, look, you're good here. But here's the challenge, though. I went from doing nothing with him to like a million a week. And that's, a pro that's actually a problem in the merchant processing world. Yeah. But it's funny because John, uh, John actually you know, saved us. And uh, you know, the reason why I know Zig and those guys, we did an infomercial with Zig back in the day. And, and um, it was to me, it was like when I got to hang out with Zig and I had dinner with him a few times and you know, it wasn't like a, a paid for thing. Like we went, actually hung out and you know, the whole family and um, to be around him, it was, it was like being around a deity, right? You know, yeah. so I just respect him and, and, and read all his books and, and yeah. he lived that, he lived that life, man. It was yeah. awesome just to be, yeah. just to be with him. And, and his humor was amazing. Like he was just such a funny guy, yeah. uh, but I really, really enjoyed being around him. But yeah, so John Ziegler in the early stages of my career uh, here at Blue Vase, he saved my company. Which is amazing. So you and with the Ziegler's, Tom Ziegler's a good friend of mine. Yep. Julie, his sister, Zig's daughter, is she's a client and a dear friend of mine. But um, you know, I I think that when when you look at and Lana Ferguson asks a question in in the comments, she says, um, "What a great testimonial, um, especially." And this is something that's that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and, and that is because I grew up poor. I grew up in the, the, not the projects, but close enough. I've been stabbed. I've been, uh, I've been through it all too. And I think that, that, you know, there is this thing. I look at Facebook and, and the friend requests I've received from, from people I may have gone to high school with or grew up with and, and they're still there. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, Dude, you're 54 years old and you're still hanging out at the bar every weekend. The same bar we hung out in at 16 or 17. Like, what the <laughs> hell's going on here, man? Like, and I don't accept their friend requests. I can't, I just can't, I can't go there, man. What was it do you feel 
because I know there are kids that you went to school with well, they're adults, but there, there are people you went to school with that are still stuck in your town. They're still stuck there in that same mindset. What do you think gave you the burning desire to say, I'm done with this crap. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go make big things happen in the world. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier. You know, I just, I just didn't want to be poor anymore, man. I just didn't, I didn't want people to look down on me. I didn't want people to, to think less of me. And, and to this day, man, people still do that. Look, yeah. you know, if you've ever watched t- television over the past 10 years, you've seen me on television promoting products and services. That's what I've been, been doing. So I'm an infomercial guy, right? Selling dietary supplements. In fact, one of the supplements is a male sexual health product. So I'm like, I'm just like, people look at me like I'm just like a huckster. I'm some guy selling dick pills or whatever it is. In fact, I had a family member say that. I was like, hey, by the way, the house you're living in, you know, you know, it's paid for by me. So, so, but here's the thing is, and so I've always been, um, I look, I have a chip on my shoulder. I'm always going to have a chip on my shoulder. And I'm always going to be that insecure kid growing up in the project that everybody looked down on. I'm always, always going to be that insecure kid that was wearing hand-me-down clothes or had to buy my clothes, um, you know, at the, you know, at the Salvation Army, or they were in fact donated. And so what drove me and what continues to drive me is I just want to prove to the world and it, it could be a problem. I don't know. Psychologically it might be, but I want to prove to the world that I'm, I was that kid. I'm not anymore. Right. And, and, and that's it. I mean, like I remember, see, look, the interesting part about Beverly, Massachusetts, where I grew up, like I said, there is, you know, uh, you know, extreme affluence here. Some of the richest people in the world live here in Beverly, Massachusetts. It's a coastal town. Yeah. Old money is here. OK. And 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 so I was I went to elementary school with some of those kids like our school system was a good school system. So they would right. send like super rich kids would go to my school. And so I would go to their home sometimes and I would be lucky enough to get invited to maybe to a birthday party or what have you, you know, if I didn't like beat them up in the schoolyard. Right. <laughs> and, and so I would go there and I'd look at these and, and the parents, I could just see it in their eyes. They had, right. they, 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 you know, they just looked at me like I was different because I was different, but I wasn't lesser. I wasn't a lesser human being mm. because I was poor. And by the way, you know, we talk about my parents, like my mom, you know, she worked full time. She went to school nights. She graduated with straight A's and she got her associate's degree. She was always trying to better herself. My father, same thing. He, I mean, he was in the Coast Guard. You know, look, you know, things happen in life and, you know, yeah. where you just, you know, you just end up poor. I mean, it is, again, I, I keep saying it is what it is. That's what happened to them. But it doesn't make us bad people. It doesn't yeah. make you lesser of a person. You know, and, and this is why I empathize with so many people. And, I, and you see, you know, the, the, the crime rate continuing to rise here in the United States. And, and people talk about, you know, the race issues and whether or not it's a race, race issue or what have you. It's, to me, it's more than that. To me, it's truly a socioeconomic thing. Race is a big part of it. But it's also truly you really are a product of your environment. So I, in a way, kind of empathize with these kids that are growing up and commit crimes because they have nothing else. And not only do they have nothing else, but they don't know where to go. They don't, they couldn't see other things. See, my mom, uh, you know, tried everything she could to get me out of the project. She, you know, applied for uh, scholarships and loans to get me to go to like the YMCA and take me out of the projects in the summertime to show me other things, to go to different areas. And when I did go to these rich neighborhoods, and in, in my in my towns, which by the way, they were just like ranch style houses. I thought they were rich. Yeah, right? right. Um, you know, I saw, I was like, whoa, like this is what I want. Like I want, I, I want, 
I want to be out of here. I don't want to have to worry about, you know, my dad dropping me off uh, several blocks away because his, the, the muffler was falling off and the car was all dented and I had to get out the side door and climb to the window because the door wouldn't open. Like, yep. I just didn't want that stuff anymore. And, 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 and again, when Grant talks about it too, I appreciate what Grant says. But it, man, as I'm telling you right now, I have that fear today. When I use my credit card, when I go to when I go to the grocery store with a debit card, if it gets declined, which happens sometimes here and there, I start to sweat and freak out because, like, I'm like, oh my god, I can you know? relate. Am, man. am I here again? You know, I know I'm not. But it's there. It's always gonna be there, man. I, I know it's crazy, man. It does not matter how much money you have if you've experienced that shit. Like, it's just. It's there. And, and there are people that can't relate to that too. So, but go back to, go back to, you, you graduate law school, you pass the bar exam on the second go around, you smoked it the second time. And, and, and then what you're, you're, you're an attorney now. And, and my go. career path was kind of crazy. So mention that, you know, that call center that I was working at. So yep. I was working at this call center. They were selling dietary supplements over the phone. Okay. Uh, via infomercial. And, you know, I had a friend who, who referred me there and, uh, you know, I went there and I interviewed and I showed up in a suit. I was in law school and I'm telling you, can there, there was when I, when I, when you describe a boiler room, it was a boiler room. There were guys on the ankle bracelet there. Okay. Right. So I go there, I go there to interview and they tell me that they don't have room for me. Okay. They don't have room for me. So I go around the HR guy. I go into customer service. I go into customer service and I was like, hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. The guy who, who happened to be running customer service interviewed me, liked me. He started asking me all these legal questions, which I thought was kind of weird. I don't know. Maybe he just didn't think that I was really in law school. So they end up hiring me. OK, so that company was the same company that when I ultimately passed the bar exam, I ended up uh, working for them in-house. The day okay, I didn't know any of this happened. I didn't know this was going on. The day I started with them. They were sued by the FTC, the FDA, the IRS came right behind them, and then it went criminal. And so I, I, um, the, my, well, my first day, the, we were served with, uh, with a complete uh, asset freeze, uh, with, with, a, with, a, with, you know, with, uh, with restraining orders, and I didn't even know what that stuff was. Oh. I mean, the facts came over and basically said, and we had outside counsel that said, you guys are done. We're shutting you down. That was my first week. Practicing oh law. I didn't even God. have my BBO number yet, right? When you sign uh, legal documents, you have to put your BBO number. I didn't have I had, I had to write BBO pending, which is a big, giant, obvious that, hey, this kid just graduated law school, right? Wow. We had outside counsel, of course. It wasn't just me when I, when right. I first started. Um, and so that was my indoctrination to law. Listen, I went to school in Boston, right? So I went to Suffolk Law Jeez. Nights. And, you know, the reason why Suffolk has such a great reputation is because they do have a great night program for, you know, people that are working. But I went to school with, with people that, you know, went to MIT. They went to Harvard. You know, they were already PhDs. They already had careers and other things. And I'm this kid from Springfield College who sold cars. And then I told them that I, I had to have my federal license expedited. Because oh we were God. in federal court in, in here in Boston. And so that was my indoctrination to law. And here's the greatest part about it. The story's insane, though, how the whole thing happened. But I was forced. When you talk about being thrown in the fire, <laughs> understatement. Yeah. Right. Understatement of what, what, we had, what, what happened. Like uh, three, four days after we were served uh, with a complete asset freeze, uh, the FTC came through the doors because they didn't, we actually, we actually, we were able to essentially win if we want to call it that, but we were, we were able to win with a temporary restraining order so we could actually conduct business. 
Four days after that, they, the three or four or five lawyers from the FTC were coming through, and I'm I'm their in-house lawyer, right? It was like uh, the craziest thing ever. But here's again the whole point of the story is, is I was forced to learn that entire business from the ground up and really how it worked and why why things were broken and why the FTC thought the way they thought and why the FDA thought the way they thought and why the IRS thought the way they thought. And I was able to, to, to understand the mechanics of the business. And then ultimately when that business um, shuttered, uh, I started my business in 2008, effectively doing the same thing. Just I learned from all the mistakes they made and didn't make the same ones. Jeez, man. So, uh, so you, okay. I'm putting myself, I'm trying to put myself in the, in, in your shoes of, I, I graduate law school. I pass the bar exam. Aren't you thinking like, okay, I want to go save the world, put, yeah. put out my own shingle, be an attorney for the masses. Like yes. I want to go to court and shut yeah. these at, at like, Weren't you thinking like that? Like, yeah. Look, I remember I read the book, The Civil Action. In Bo- I finished it in in in, uh, in Boston Common, and you know Jan Slickman actually lives in Beverly, Massachusetts. Okay. Wow. Uh, and um, you know, yeah, you have this naive thought as a young lawyer that you're going to save the world, right? Right. And, you know that you're going to be this, you know, big lawyer, class action lawyer. It's going to save the consumers and you know do all these things. And right. Um, you know, and 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 that's kind of did what I, it, it is what I thought I wanted to do. But I was really lucky to even get a job, you know, right at right out of the gate. You know, see, right. when I the fact that I had a job right out of the gate was just remarkable because look, I mean, I did well in law school. I was in the top half of my class. I was in the dean's list three out of four years. And so I was a lot different person then than I was when I was 14, 15, 16, and even in college. So so it was it was um, you know, that was a different, just a different time of my life. And so my grades and everything else look great. But look. Like I said, you have Harvard in in in, in Boston. You have yeah. you know you have Boston College. You have Northeastern. Yeah. You know, and then you have all these other law schools all over the country. So, um, as far as competitiveness, it's it's crazy. Once you once you make it to, <clears throat> to that level, it's like all right, great, congratulations. Okay, so cool, you got your masters. So so did everybody else, right? It's a little bit different when you get your juris doctorate. But then when you get your juris doctorate, then you're like, all right, well. Now you're grouped in with all those people too, right? And a lot of them might be smarter than you and have, you know, a better pedigree than you and maybe even know a lot more people than you. So it was, um, I was just super fortunate to even get the job. I remember talking to my ex-wife. I remember, I can visualize this. I remember she was a great negotiator. I met her because we were both in sales and that's when we met. And she was, we were going back and forth about my salary and what I should get. And should I, you know, should they cover my car payment? In fact, they did cover my car payment. I remember that first week and I was like, oh my God. Like I thought I was going to get my car payment covered. I, I remember talking to someone in finance. I'm like, Hey, do you think I'm going to get at least my first payment covered before you guys wow. get shut down? You know? Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it was, um, it, it was, it was such a great time uh, to, to, to do that. But the, the idea of, you know, changing the world um, it's a beautiful uh, utopianistic view, but it's just not reality. <laughs> Right. I, I, I love the utopianistic. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so, so you, you said you, you ended up starting your own, own business in a, in a similar industry. Um, and I know that you've done extremely well with that. Um, what, what else has been going on? I know you just mentioned that you were on TV. I don't watch television, so I apologize. I may have seen you on TV, but I don't remember. Yeah, no. So again, so, so, you know, we, we, um, um, created, uh, 
long form interview style infomercials where I would sit at a desk and I would interview people about their products and services. Okay. So I was, I was the host. And, and so I would interview them about their books or about their supplements or about their programs. And, you know, uh, I know, you know, Dean Graziosi is, but you know, we, we actually did Dean's how to be a real estate millionaire with my old company. And then we did it again for him after that. And so I was able to sit down with people and, and have a, like, just basically like a conversation like you and I are having obviously edited uh, down so that it makes sense with calls to action and all those other things like that. So that's, that was the primary business. And look, that business is essentially over right now. I mean, nobody is really watching television the way they used to watch television. You still have that big rectangular box that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger that we put on our walls, but, but it's, it's, it's different. It's a different medium. You know, we're watching YouTube, Netflix, Hulu, et cetera, et cetera, on that big giant box. We're no longer just, you know, flicking through the channels. When I started, uh, when I when I was practicing law, there were a couple hundred channels. Now there's thousands of channels, yep. and then you know, and Direct TV and all these other things that didn't didn't even exist back then. So it's uh, the competitive nature of direct response uh, infomercials uh, is extremely competitive, and it's just really not as cost effective. Uh, you still see them, you still do see infomercials, but they're yeah. usually kind of legacy brands that maybe have a retail presence that are that are just trying to continue to advertise and offset their advertising costs with maybe some phone calls, you know, that come in. So that was really kind of been, you know, the primary the, the primary business, uh, you know, throughout the years. Look, that business will exist and continue to exist for years to come because, you know, we built a massive database with great products and great services. Look, I've been selling dietary supplements, you know, for on my own since 2008. That's rare. Wow. Um, you know, because a lot of them are just run and gun. They're kids. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. You know, they just, you know, they might white label somebody's product and have no idea about the claims that they're making or even the product itself and, and, and the efficacy of the product, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've been doing that for a long time. That business will continue to thrive. It's not going to do 50, 60 million a year like it used to. But we have a pretty solid foundation that if I were to stop, which I effectively have, it still continues to bring in revenue, which, by the way, is way more profitable than it was back then when I was also spending, you know, 50 million a year on advertising. Right. <laughs> right. It's not a good business if you bring in 47 million and spend 50. I had a guy, a mentor of mine. He said to me, uh, I, I actually owed him $750,000. I didn't even know who the guy was. He was the silent partner of this, of this manufacturer. He just showed up out of nowhere, right? And that, his name is Charles Parisi. I tell the story all the time. Charles Parisi from Brooklyn out of nowhere, wow. right? Shows up, tells me I now owe him the money. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. So he's like, Mike, I want to audit you. So the audit, he audits me. And, and he says, listen, um, congratulations. He said, and it was like uh, September, October. He said, um, you've done um, uh, 33 million this year, right? Uh, Congratulations. He says, it's a remarkable thing. Like, I don't care where you are in history, but that's a big number. And knowing where you, what you've done and like, it's, it's pretty awesome. He said, but what if I told you you lost 2 million? Then what if I told you, if you cut that revenue in half and you could actually keep that 2 million, like you could keep that 2 million, which one would you choose? And I go, oh, well, I, I kind of like the 33 million number. I don't know. So it kind of sounds kind of cute, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, uh, and I was kind of half joking, but at the same time, there was a big ego thing at a very, yeah. you know, when I was younger, I was like, man, I just want a big business. I want all these people and I want all this stuff. And, and I, you know, uh, I was just super naive, you know? Um, now looking back on it, you know, I, I just, 
Um, I wish I listened to him. And you know what? Throughout the years, I'm actually staring. You can't see it, but I launched the I launched the vodka business through uh, a few years ago, and I and I've been in that business before, and I really understand that business. And um, you know, I was telling him about it, and I and I um, I backed an artist because uh, I just I love to collect art, and I was telling him about it, and he says, "Well, how much do you have into the you know into the vodka at the time?" I go at the time, it was like I don't know, hundred fifty thousand. Do you have any inventory? I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Sell it, get out." What's the deal with the art thing? And I said, "Well, you know, I really like the art. I really think he's you know I think we could go big with it." He goes, "Get out." And I was like, no, 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 I mean, no, no, no way. I lost, I lost so much money on those deals. Yeah. This guy, Charles Parisi, has been in business for a long time. He's older than me. He's he gets it. He's a seasoned, you know, business professional, and it just really kind of speaks volumes to you know to the old you know saying you know some of the the best experiences are the experiences of others. <laughs> so, dude, and and but that's I mean that's all all um we all do that stupid. I, I mean, you do. I. I, I <laughs> I've had some of the most sage advice of all time and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Old man, whatever. I got this. Right. <laughs> you know, and there's like, no, I don't. So, so, so talk to me about what you've got going now. What's, what's going on in your world now? Yeah, it's really interesting, man. You know, we're doing a lot of different things. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a blessing and a curse for entrepreneurs, right? You know, people yep. used to ask me, what do you do for a living? I say, well, you know, I'm a lawyer by trade. I used to love telling people that. Make sure that they know <laughs> yeah. I was a lawyer, right? I'm a lawyer by trade. Um, you know, I'm on television. I'm an author. I'm right. this, I'm that, all this other stuff. And I realized it just it sounds ridiculous. I'm an entrepreneur, plain and simple, right? You know, you, I think you either are or you aren't. I was an entrepreneur since the very beginning, since I was a little kid, right? All the, all the stories of, you know, shoveling driveways and, and lemonade stands and, and you know, and paper yeah. routes. I, 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 that's that's who I am, right? I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's a good it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a great life. Um, and it's also sometimes can be a difficult. It can be a very lonely life and it can be yeah. a very stressful life. Um, and also as entrepreneurs, when we see opportunities, right? I call it shiny object syndrome. We say, whoa, look at that thing. Oh, like that thing over there. That looks cool. <laughs> I think I, I well, you know what? Uh, forget about this thing right here. That's actually yeah. making money. Let me go over there. Let me chase, let me chase that thing and see if that thing can make me more money than this thing. Right. right. And, and I suffer with it, this, this ailment. Um, yep. but uh, fortunately probably not as bad as most, but it has cost me millions, uh, yep. throughout the years. Here's the interesting thing about like kind of what we're doing right now, uh, with my, with my current business. Um, uh, you know, I've written a bunch of books. My books have been very successful. Um, they're sold all over the world. They're translated in multiple languages. I'm a three-time Wall Street Journal, USA Today bestselling author. I chased the New York Times to try and get on the New York Times because again, I wanted to tell the world. You know, that I'm not that kid from the projects anymore. Hey, look at me. I'm a New York Times bestselling author, right? A hundred percent. I've said it a million times. It was an ego play for me. That's it, right? I had no other plan, which is a big mistake for my books. I spent all this money, my millions on my books. And I tell people I, sometimes I wish that I had it back. Here's the interesting thing. I was on a show like yours, probably not as good as yours, right? But I was on a show like yours and, and someone ha happened to hear me talk about the success in the things that I've done for marketing my books. I'm a marketer first. I'm a direct response marketer. Okay. Uh, I'm an author second. And so when I, when I wrote my first book, ask more, get more in 2014, I was like, Hey, you know, I, um, I think, uh, I know I'm going to be a New York times bestseller. It's just a matter of if I'm going to be number one or not. Okay. My heart was broken pretty quickly. I realized that selling supplements and even selling books, by the way, We've sold millions of books. That's not an exaggeration. We've sold millions of books throughout the years, not all mine, but books for other people. And I was right. like, well, this is just going to be, you know, slam dunk for me. Well, 
um, my heart was broken. And I realized that there are, there are a lot more, there's a lot more to selling books than selling, than selling gadgets and widgets and supplements and, uh, and even selling books direct response. In other words, from, you know, from me to the consumer, right? Not yeah. at a store. And so, but when I, when I had my heart broken, when I first launched my first book and no one cared, like nobody cared. And people, some people like, oh, hey, congratulations. But no one really bought it. And I was like devastated. And it was with Greenleaf, which, by the way, was Grant Cardone's first publisher. I, um, uh, I had to figure it out. And so that book, uh, Ask More, Get More, we went on to do great things with that. Again, sold all over the world. I think uh, we hit uh, Wall Street multiple times. The physical list, the digital list. That was able, th then from there, I was able to get a two-book deal with Wiley & Sons, the fifth largest publisher in the world. Um, yeah. My second book uh, was titled 5% More. I mean, the title kind of also speaks for itself. And then my third book with them, uh, it's called Blueprint to Business, an entrepreneur's guide to doing the things that most people won't, right? So those yeah. books done some great things. I spent all this money. And um, trying to, to, to hit the pinnacle of success of the, wall, of, of the New York Times. But I realized that that also is a, is, a, is, a, is a world that I may never break through because of who I am, because I'm not uh, accepted into that world, right? And um, look, I know some of the guys um, and we've, uh, that, that have, you know, you could buy 50,000 copies of your own book and you can figure out a way to game the system. It doesn't work like that anymore. They're, they're kind of hip to that stuff. So I had to figure out how can I sell books to the database, to the people that I've already been selling stuff to, right? How can I incorporate my direct response marketing? In fact, my mentor, Charles Parisi, was the one who told me, Mike, take a look at what you have. Market to them and see if you can do well with them. That's what I do with my books. Now, fast forward yeah. years later, I'm now doing that for authors. And one of the one of the kind of the giant exclamation points uh, for this and what we're doing for books, and by the way, there's no one in the world that has what I have. There are other people that talk about doing stuff. And there are other, there's one or two that have had a fair amount of success, but no one has what I have because I've built it. It's my own. Right. Right. So, but, yeah. but here's the thing is Kevin Harrington. And we talked about this. I think when you and I first met, he's a good friend yeah. of mine. He comes from the direct response world. He's an icon in the infomercial space. People don't realize he actually created the infomercial here in the United States. Yeah. It's such a big deal, but he created, I mean, PBS was doing stuff before him, but he created the infomercial. Okay. Yeah. Kevin and I are friends. Uh, we're on the phone a couple of years ago about his book called mentor to millions. He tells me he launched it. Doesn't do anything. They sold like 2000 copies. I said, Kevin, you realize that's what I do for authors. He didn't know. Right. So I said, listen, let me help you. You know, gave him a little bit of a discount, took care of him the following week. We sold 13,000 copies of his book on him to number two, a wall street journal, number one in the world on, on, on Amazon in the world against all books, not just number one in some cat, some subcategory right yeah. and and so that's for me was almost one of the biggest exclamation points for how difficult it is to, to actually market and sell books the last part is the most important part the selling part because anybody yeah. can market marketing is easy i can market look i wrapped nascars with my books right that's that's marketing i sponsored a guy in the world series of poker that's marketing that's not selling books but i was yeah. able to sell books for kevin and for now so many so many people after this to, in an effort to get them to to the the coveted list that they're looking for, mostly Wall Street USA Today, because those ones are they're not straight numbers. They are um, they do look at a lot of different things. So you can't just any book yeah. can't just do it if you just want to pay for it. You have to have some sort of street cred, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so that's really what we've been doing now. I love it. 
Uh, I really enjoy it because I've lived it. I am an author. I've bled it. I've cried it. I understand it. And I'm continuing to even innovate within this space and using things like AI to continue to, to sell books for people. So that's it, uh, a long way to answer to what I'm doing now. No, I, I love it. You know, I, I wrote a book with Jeffrey Gittimer right there. Who's yep. the author of the little red book of selling. And, and that's a wily book. And, and, um, <clears throat> Jeffrey has a saying, <laughs> which is kind of funny because I've dealt with a lot of publishers. I've written seven books myself and, and I, I, um, uh, he says, um, all publishers are liars and whores. <laughs> yeah. But He's I mean, right, man. He's right. There's because, so many that are just full of crap, man. They make, they, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And yada, yada, yada. And they don't do anything. Well, you know why is because most of them are, are living in the, the, look, you know, in a few years, we're going to look back on the publishing industry and we're going to say, wow, it's the same thing that happened to Blockbuster, right? Yep. It's the same thing that happened to Tower Records um, yep. because they, they, um, they are living in, in an old world. Yep. They don't understand, you know, the current environment. They don't even know what, you know, TikTok is, you know, yep. they don't know what book talk is, right? They don't know some of the advances in the, in, in the understanding of like, Hey, an audio book now, like, you know, some of the audiobooks that we've worked on, they're scored like movies. Okay. There's not just someone's voice. Okay. So they're, they're really, really behind the times and they will kind of uh, lean on the fact that, Hey, yeah, we're one of the big five or the big three or whatever. Right. And, yeah. and we're great, but they're not great marketers. Most publishers, and by the way, you know, when you see a lot of these books on the list, I'm usually the one behind it. Right. Sometimes we have non-disclosure agreements, so we can't even say who it is, yeah. but, but, um, they hire us because they don't know what they're doing. And, uh, and, and, and then you have others that are even resistant to even open their eyes to kind of a new way of thinking about how to market and, and sell books. You know, I had someone, you know, and I, by the way, I hired all these quote book marketers back in the day. That's how I also spent a lot of money. And, and most of them have no idea what, what they're doing either. Um, you know, because maybe they wrote a children's book and they got it to bestseller on Amazon. Look, I can get any book to bestseller status within six hours. I don't care yep. what it is on yep. Amazon, right? It's, it's, that's easy. Okay? It's easy. And it's, yep. it's, it's hourly. Anybody can do it. There's a great study. A guy took a copy, a picture of his foot, put her on the cover, on a cover, posted her on Amazon and became a bestseller. I mean, that's a true story. Like that really yeah. happened. Yeah. But you're right. So a lot of publishers to this day, uh, I look at them as distribution channels, distribution warehouses, and printing companies. They're not marketers. They have marketing divisions. They should just let them all go because they don't do anything for marketing. They do stuff that used to work in the past. They might think about things like, Hey, you know, like, look, look I, um, I had, uh, I worked on a book recently and they, um, they had their book, uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a, on a, on a band, on a, on a billboard in, in, uh, in, in times square. Looks cool, man. Looks really, really cool. Right. Wow. I did the whole thing. And here's the thing that doesn't sell shit. That doesn't sound no. like, right. It looks cool. By the way, I could Photoshop that for you and make it look the same way. Okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and yeah. A lot of people do do that stuff. So I've just learned That's that. Great, I'm putting my book on, on Times Square today later on. That's yeah. I mean, idea. why not? I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, so I've seen just a lot of things in, in, and spent a lot of money and did a lot. Look, I opened up accounts for Wiley that they didn't even have, you know, for distribution. I've done the Hudson. You and I were talking about this way, way back, you know, the Hudson yeah. news thing, like how I even got connected with Grant Cardone 
alone because years ago it was my book, it was Tony Robbins' book, it was Ryan Blair's book, and it was Grant Cardone's book. Grant Cardone reached out to me, had me on a show, Power Players. I think it was 2015. He's like, who is this kid? I was at his office in Miami, his old yeah. office, and you know, and that's how we got connected. It was as a result of my book. So here's the thing about the book, right? Even to this day, um, even though it's this you know kind of thing, this physical thing that seems to be dying a little bit, it is to this day one of the greatest marketing tools that you can have and it can Amen. last forever forever right? it can last yep. forever and so you could continue to to generate income and build businesses off of that so if you are an entrepreneur if you are a ceo if you're someone who's looking to build your business you can put together a great book and whatever your 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 um you know, your, your, uh, expertise is in and yeah. put it out there in the universe and grow a business and be really, really successful with it. But the challenge is, is now because it's so easy with self-publishing, there's so much shit that's out there as well. And people think, well, Oh, I wrote a book and I look at it. I said, no, you wrote a 70 page long story. You don't write a yeah. book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just wrote some long story. Like I, 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 my blog articles are longer than, than your books. And so yeah. that's also a bit of a negative thing. So, but if you really want to, um, make an impact on the world and do it in a way now because of self-publishing, you can do it in a way that is actually inexpensive. Uh, I would suggest actually doing it. Uh, look, and then I, I'll say this. I don't believe everybody has a book in them. I think, I, that, I, I think I, that's I, just companies like Jack Canfield and all these other guys saying, Hey, everybody has a book in them. No, they don't. Most people yeah. live boring lives, plain and simple. They just live yeah. boring like lives. Everybody yeah. doesn't have a book in them, but a lot of people do and don't realize it. Okay. So the people that do have a book in them should write a book. I, you know, I'm, 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 um, an affiliate partner with Mark Victor Hansen, who's one of my dearest friends in the world. And, um, he has a book and a course called you have a book in you. And, and Mark is one of the most positive uplifting people I've ever known in my life. Yeah, he's awesome. And, and, you know, he's, he, and I, I, I do, I agree with you and I also agree with him, but cause there are people that should not ever try to write a book, but I think that if people would, and, and you know, this it's very, it's, it's, it's healing. Like there can be, oh yeah. Healing just by sitting down and writing out a story about your life or whatever it is. Right. And how you got through the crap. Let me ask, because we're running out of time. Well, we're out, we're out of time. We're over. But I want to. I just want to wrap up and ask you a couple quick questions. Number one, um, what what do you think stops people, man? I'm talking two two things that I know they're related. Number one, what in the what stops people from financial success? Number one, and number two from experiencing real freedom and happiness in life. And those are, I think they're related completely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, you probably heard the answer before. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of two things. It's fear of failure or fear of success, you know? And I think, I think I um, have suffered and even continue to have to check myself on those things. Because when you read a, when you reach a certain level of success, then you are fearful of losing it. Yeah. Uh, and you're also fearful of what your peers or like talk about those friends on Facebook that you grew up with because they're just rooting. You know, they are. They're just rooting for your failure. And yeah. so, you know, you, you fear that. And so therefore, you just kind of stay where you're at because it's a safe place. Um, and that's it. I mean, a lot of people are just fearful of, of, of putting themselves out there 
and being vulnerable and potentially suffering a catastrophic loss or what have you. But unfortunately, look, I was talking to my therapist about this. He doesn't believe in what I'm about to say. Unfortunately, that is a part of it. That is a part of success. You really do have to experience that trauma. Um, you know, I think that it's a universal law of success that you have to, you know, really get beat up pretty bad. And then you have to figure out, you know, whether or not you're going to get up. The challenge is, is most people don't get up and challenges. Most people are afraid to get punched in the face yeah. and um, because it hurts and it hurts you in, in, in and, and like physically, if you actually get punched, in the face, it hurts it to hurts. lose things financially. It hurts to, to kick a shot on a business and ultimately have to close it. I've done it over and over and over again. Yeah. I've shuttered businesses. I've declared bankruptcy. I've been broke. I've been on the brink so many times and it's not fun. Anybody who tells you that it's fun or anybody that tells you they like it is an, is a sociopath. However, <laughs> however, any successful person that I know, you know, the really, really successful ones, they've all, they've all been there. Look, I was just watching the documentary about Elon Musk uh, and SpaceX. I mean, everyone kind of knows the story, but people yeah. don't realize like he was weeks away, even days away of complete catastrophic financial failure. And then he got, you know, the, uh, the, the government deal of like 1.5 billion. Um, I don't think you have to get there either. I don't think you have to put yourself there. I've met too many people that feel like they, they, they manufacture adversity. Don't manufacture adversity. Like if you, if you, if you live a pretty decent life and you're in a good spot, don't intentionally put yourself in some whacked out position so right. that you can feel the pain. Nobody likes to feel the pain. I, I try to avoid the pain as much as I can, but I do feel as though it is a necessary part of success. I, I so agree with you. And I, you see, you see it, you see people do that. Like, dude, what are you like a mass sadomasochist or so I, I, I totally agree, man. This is powerful. I could talk to you all day, man. <laughs> I, I know you got other things going on. So, um, michaelalden.net, is that the, the best place for Yeah, people? you go to michaelalden.net or, or michaelalden.com. You can check me out on Instagram. It's Mike Alden 2012. Uh, that's kind of when I got active on social media. So uh, yeah. Instagram, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, the whole thing. I'm mostly active on Instagram. So it's, uh, it's Mike Alden 2012. Teodora asks, what's the first step to take when you know you have a book in you? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. Um, so, um, you know, I didn't necessarily know that I had a book in me either, Theodora. And so uh, when I looked at my first book, Ask Me What Get More, it was designed to be sold on television as a lead gen, just like what Dean Graziosi did and a lot of these other guys have done, right? And that's what yep. I did. And so I put it together kind of uh, really quickly uh, in an effort to create an advertisement to see if I could get some interest. And yep. so I definitely got a lot of interest. And then I actually finished writing the book. And as I was writing the book and I had other people read it, um, that's when I started to, to get feedback. And then you just kind of know you yeah. know, if you had it, but Ken, you brought up, I know we don't run out of time, but you did bring up something and, 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 I'll, and I'll maybe change my positioning in the future about how I say this, but it is really powerful what you say. Cause I have a friend who's writing a book um, and, and, and the whole book is really about her childhood trauma and whether or not that book sells or not is really almost irrelevant because it's like what you said, it's, it's cathartic for her. It's therapeutic for her to yeah. put it down, whether she even publishes it or puts it in the public domain, that's really up to her. But it, it really has helped her kind of get through some of that pain and trauma. And so, yeah. you know, um, selling a book is, is, is one thing. But, yeah, like you said, if you want to write a book to, to, um, to put your legacy down or put your memoir down so that your so future generations can learn about maybe what you went through, then yeah. sure, you know, then certainly go ahead, go ahead and do that.
I, I, I mean, I think like, like you just said, I think that, that I, I remember when I wrote my first book, I was like, I wrote it like my life depend, like my life kind of felt like it depended on it at the moment. I don't know why, but I, Grant's the reason I wrote the book. He he's the one that's you got to write your book, man. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't if, what I, what am I gonna write about? Like you know, and 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 it was one of the, it's the best thing I've ever done in my business. business well, ten X right, ten X yeah. for him. I mean, I mean, he talks about it in the book itself, right? But I mean, ten X is the book that truly put Grant on the map. Yep. I mean, you know, he had had obviously some other successes with his previous book, Shall I Be Sold yeah, and yeah, things like yeah. that. But, but that book was really the one that really propelled him in, uh, into the strat, into stratospheric levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because of just that whole, you know, 10 X. I, I agree with you. I agree, man. I, 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 we need to do some more stuff together. Yeah, let's do it. I, I, I think we need to do some more, but so hang on for me for a minute. I'm going to end this, but Mike, I want to say thank you for coming on and sharing your, your heart, your wisdom, your uh, dude, your transparency is incredible. So I, I'm very grateful for you coming on and spending time with us. Likewise. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. We'll see you guys later. Have a great day.